it's really a pleasure to be to be back. Uh, I can make this a habit. <laughs> I, would, I, I do enjoy visiting you guys. Um, <clears throat> we are in a we are in an era, in a, in a sort of a stage. Some people call it a season of life, um, where we we often have to make very big decisions. We see um, we look at the future of. Uh, our lives, our congregations, the the denom we're in, um, and we see a world that is often. Uh, it, it seems that the the darkness, the enemy, is quite gigantic, um, and we wonder how are things going to go forward. What kind of choices do we make? What, what should our attitude be? Uh, looking at the future knowing that we have to make some really important decisions, um, how are we going to react to this overwhelming, this gigantic enemy, this gigantic uh, challenge? And isn't it just great <clears throat> that 1 Samuel uh, is dealing with a giant? Um, it's, it's the most famous story, I think, in the world. <laughs> I, you know, even uh, Tom Sawyer said that he knows only two names in the whole Bible, David and Goliath. <laughs> <laughs> but someone commented in, uh, when preaching, when preaching this particular passage, is, he wonders what's most difficult. Is it, is it more difficult to preach this passage to someone who's never heard it before? Or is it more difficult to preach it to someone who's heard it a hundred times? And I think it's more difficult to preach it to someone who's heard it a hundred times because the danger is that you know, you think you know exactly what it's all about. And maybe, maybe it's a good thing for me to say and remind you or tell you what the story is not about. Can I just quickly clear that out and then we can delve ourselves into the story and see what is it about? This story is not trying to find ourselves as the hero of the story associating with David. We, me and you, are not the, you know, David is the hero of the story and I want to be the hero of my own story too and therefore I am David. I, of course, it's not what it's about. Ultimately, this story is not about you and me. Being David and slaying our own giants. That's not what it's about. So what is this story about? We have to start a little bit back from in 1 Samuel 9. In 1 Samuel 9 is where Saul got chosen to be the king. And God appointed him. Uh, he was a king, just like all the other nations. But one of his job descriptions as a king is that he must go ahead into the battlefield and fight the battles for his nation. It was part of the job description. So, uh, when, when he was chosen, uh, he was chosen, uh, and the, he's very clearly described. He was a head taller than any other Israelite. He was good looking. So he was very impressive. So when he would go out into the battlefield, he would be a, on, on face value, 
an impressive force to be reckoned with to, to uh, go out in front of the Israelites to uh, intimidate and to inspire. Soon after that, we know that uh, his, he had a very particular fear, a fear of men, a fear of uh, people larger than you know, greater armies, and also fear of being not recognized and loved uh, by his own people. So he keeps on making mis- uh, decisions to please them, or he reacts in fear of them instead of obeying God's word. So eventually that culminated in a, in a uh, situation where the Lord rejects him as king. And he takes away his spirit from Saul and gives it to David. When David, when, when Samuel eventually anointed David as king. And here we find ourselves in the very first battle that Samuel has to fight. And the only thing he has, he doesn't have the spirit of the Lord anymore. And the only thing he has is his impressive height, his good looks, his impressive demeanor. That's what he's got. That's what he's got left. So you can already see where the problem is going to come from. Um, so here's Israel's old enemy, the Philistines. They've been um, added it again. And, and this time they have occupied a strip, a very important trade route between um, Israel and Philistines and the Philistines in around about the country or this of Judah. Uh, verse one tells us it's a trade route in a valley. The valley is called Elah, uh, and so the the Israelites camped on one hill on this you know of the valley. The Israelites and the Philistines camped on the other side, and they were in a bit of a deadlock because whoever was coming down that hill to attack would have given up their position of of height. And you don't want, you always want to be the higher uh, position in a war to fight down on someone. So both of them were sort of stuck. Uh, they didn't want to give up that, that sort of position uh, and, and lose the upper hand. So the Philistines said, uh, well, we've got a plan B. Um, we are going to send out our latest military invention. Right, and his name is Goliath. And Goliath was a monster. Three meters tall. How was the height of a roof? 2.7? All right, he would not be able to stand up straight. My son is quite tall. You know, he's 188 meters. That, that was quite impressive. In our church, we've got a two meter guy, Matthew Ridgeway. He's two meters. And then you think, ah, oh, shame, right? Not, you know, that's not, that's not very good. And then you've got the tallest person in the world living it today. He's 2.4 meters, and we had sort of a... And then you have... And then you've got Goliath. He is a tank. His armor alone weighs 70, uh, 57 kilograms. His, the, the tip of his spear is 7 kilograms on its own. The shaft of his spear is so big that no normal man's hand can get around it. Not only was he very well trained, enormous, he was also uh, armed to the teeth. He had to have a shield bearer to carry the rest of what he himself couldn't carry. 
And that is why they call him a champion. Now the Hebrew word for champion means a go-between. A man who would be able to go between the, 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 um, the people that you represent, your nation, and the enemy. A go-between to stand between the two enemy lines. That is a champion. And this man was exactly that. He was the go-between. He was trained, he was equipped, he was able to step up between the competing armies and challenge the opponent in single combat, which often happened. And in verse 8, so this will be very good for you. So obviously this sermon is going to come from the whole of chapter 17. So if you've got your Bible open, we're going to cover the whole... Uh, the tra you know the trailer in a movie, right? Uh, the trailer was read. You know, the highlight, the, the, the actual fight. But it's good for us to read through the whole of the chapter. So let's have a look at chapter 8. What this champion uh, said to Israel. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? I'm, am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servant of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. Now what this guy is saying is, you guys are absolutely useless. Every morning, every evening, you line up in battle, you get dressed, and you do absolutely nothing. I defy you. I defy you, and I defy the God you're standing for. Why don't you give me a man? Give me a man, and we can fight it out. We can sort this out. Now, some of the Israelite soldiers would have noticed that and said, listen, I thought we had a man. We chose Saul. He's our man. And when they look around, it's like, oh, where is he? And we know where he is. He is uh, he's absent. Uh, he's very afraid. So here's the first lesson that Israel learns uh, from this story. And something I think we can take along with us. Israel is learning this very hard lesson um, and it is the problem of relying on a worldly source of strength in times of a crisis. They, are, they have put their trust in a man. They have put their trust and hope in a person. And um, <clears throat> Saul's height was imposing. Uh, his his, his uh, good looks, he looked fierce. But now there's someone taller. Someone fiercer, someone better trained, someone with better weapons. So for you and for me, whatever it is that we're facing in this world, let's not make the mistake to, by default, put our trust in anything human, anything worldly, as a source of our strength. Never put your ultimate hope in a human. You will always be disappointed, like the Israelites were disappointed. And look at the why are they disappointed? Because Saul has a very particular reaction to this threat. Verse 11, verse 24, and verse 16. Let's have a look at verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Verse 24. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, saw the man, 
They all fled from him in great fear. And this fear obviously left them completely paralyzed. They did not know what to do. And it wasn't just a, a short paralysis, you know, for like a week or so. Look at verse 16. It says, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. For 40 days, that is a permanent paralysis. And it's because they feared. Right? Their man didn't measure up to their man. And suddenly they had nowhere to go. So here's the problem. Saul and Israel are acting as if God is irrelevant to this whole battle. They don't ask for him. They don't look for him. His name isn't even mentioned in chapter 17 up until this point. God is absent because neither Saul nor Israel is bringing God into the battle. And therefore, they are terrified. They, if they think it's a physical battle only, and they don't bring God into it. So the question to ourselves is the same thing. When we have any kind of battle, if we look at the world around us, the darkness, <clears throat> and I mean not the lack of ESCOM, I mean the, the spiritual darkness, uh, the political agendas of groups, uh, the way that the world, especially in the Western world, is starting to shape their, uh, their laws uh, in order to, to you know, bring the noose more and more tightly around Christians. Um, what, is, what is our response? Do we think that this is just a physical battle? My, my battle is against that person or that movement or, or this wanting legislation. Of course we have to approach them too. But our first default should be that we should bring God into this battle. God is the one that should be fighting for us. He is our king. We should recognize that. And we should never rely on this world, on any kind of worldly source first. You know, that guy's intelligence, or that person's money, or that person's <coughs> influence. It's not, it should not be our go-to in order to solve a problem. It should be getting God into the, into the mix. He's bringing everything under the sovereign authority of the Lord. <clears throat> so we shouldn't trust our own height or intelligence or richness or, uh, or anything like that. It is God's grace. It is God's um, thoughts that are much higher than our thoughts that we should really go to and rely on. Rather trust in God, as I said, whose thoughts are much higher than our thoughts. And then say, who do you appoint? Where should we go? Who should we consult? So here it is. Israel are terrified. Right? At the end of verse 11, we see a terrified king standing amongst a, a terrified nation and an army. And it begs the question, who is going to be the champion? Who is going to be the man willing to, to step out? And surely that guy that's going to face Goliath has to be uh, bigger, stronger, more well-trained, uh, you know, at least equal in, in terms of um, weaponry. And then they go to verse 12. 
And suddenly the scene is on David. And when we get to David, it is ironically the exact opposite of what everybody's expecting. David is the youngest boy of eight or nine kids. He's out in the sticks, out in Bethlehem. His, uh, his, his dad is very old. And he's a, a shepherd. And, he's a, and what he's doing, the reason why he's at the fight is not because he can, it's because he's not old enough, he's not trained. He's a, he's a Mr. Delivery. He, he needs to take food and he needs to bring back news about how things are going. That, that's all he's there for. And that is what everybody sees when they see him. Right, so his father sends him, you know, with a whole bunch of food, gets it in, it's not 60-60, you know, but he'll get there eventually. <laughs> uh, travels 30 kilometers away to, to the front. And when he gets there, uh, it's early morning, and just as the, the, the armies are lined up again. So he drops the bag at, the, at the, whoever the guy is that holds the bags, runs to the front, shoves his way through the, the lines, the, the, the back markers, and, and finds his brothers and saying, what, what's going on? What's the news? And it's just then when Goliath walks up, Goliath walks up and shouts his usual taunt. So not only does David hear Goliath's speech, but what he also sees is the, the massive fear of Saul and the Israelites. And, and he couldn't believe what he's seen. And then David starts getting into a conversation because he wants to make sense of what's happening. He's getting in conversation with some of the army, um, some of the soldiers. And um, then his brother hears him talking and his brother says, what are you doing here? I know what you're doing. You're a little scoundrel. You're not, you think you're going to get away with doing your chores at home. Uh, that's why you're here. Get, you know, drop your stuff and go home. And he's like, well, I'm just talking, man. I'm just making conversation. So even if his own brothers uh, see him as nothing else than just a delivery boy, get out of our feet. But David replies in verse 26. He says, David asked the men, standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. You see, unlike Saul, David assesses this situation in light of the rule of the living God. That's his default worldview. And he sees Goliath for what he really is, an enemy of God, who is defying God publicly. And here, for the very first time, someone is actually bringing God into the picture. The very thing that the true God, or the true King of Israel, should be doing. Something that Saul has neglected all the time. Now, we're not quite sure why this shepherd boy, his comments that he made, actually got to Saul. But the point is, Saul hears this, and maybe there's a figure of hope. Maybe he's reminded, oh yeah, we're supposed to have God around. Let's, get this, let's hear what this boy has to say. And he gets him out in verse 32. David stands in front of Saul, and David says this to him. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go 
and fighting. Now the story, the author of the story is very clever. Any Israelite who, who sees this scene plays out will know that when you are faced with the king, you are quiet until the king speaks first. But who speaks first? David speaks first. And what the author is saying is the real king has spoken. The anointed of God has spoken. And he's just indicating a little bit that who, who David really is. He's reminding us that this is the guy who's already been anointed. He's got the spirit. But it doesn't look like it. So, the man that no one expects, the one that looks nothing like a king, the most inconsequential guy on the battlefield that's even being dismissed by his own brothers is the true king, the unexpected king. And even when Saul looks at him, he dismisses him. He says, well, you've got no training and you've got no weapons. There's no way I'm going to send you out. You're a boy. But as we know from the story, David has more training as a shepherd boy than we can ever imagine. Um, and what David was able to convince Saul of is that his confidence to go out and fight this giant lies squarely on God. His confidence lies squarely on God. His remarkable experience um, and ability to protect his father's flock from the lion and the bear, I would love to have that conversation with him. How in the world? Grab him by the hair. <laughs> but those who wanted to ravage and kill the flock of God, God, you know, David says to him, I trust God. The same God that, was, that saved me from the bear and the lion is going to save me from this Goliath. And as you all remember, Saul was trying to make him wear his armor so that at least the guy looks a little bit more like a champion. That didn't work out well. Everything turned out to be too big and you know, looks more like a dress-up body than a fight. Um, and so the most unlikely person with the most unlikely weapons steps out to be the champion of Israel. And he walks out into the battlefield. Here is a man, anointed. One man willing to stand in between them and their greatest enemy. One man that represents all of God's people. It's a very surprising picture. It would be even more surprising for Goliath. We're not quite sure how far the distance is between these two battle lines. But you can imagine him stepping forward, and here comes David. Both Goliath and his armor bearer, I think it would be jaw-dropping. The guy, Goliath, looks at him, sees he's way too good-looking, and you know he looks like an, uh, a pin-pusher. <laughs> it's like, no, there's no war here. And he despised him. And Goliath says to him in verse 43, Am I a dog? That you come to me with, a, with sticks. And the Philistine curses David by his gods. Now we shouldn't miss this very important little line of what Goliath is saying. He is saying he's cursing him by his gods. It's very significant because it shows that the battle is ultimately a spiritual one. Ultimately, this is... <clears throat> 
what's unfolding here is the battle between two nations' gods. The non-gods of the Philistines and the living God of Israel. You know, the non-gods of the Philistines, <laughs> they are gods, if you read the story, that the, the Philistines have to carry those gods to the war and put them down, and then they would protect them. The opposite of that is when, when we read Isaiah 46, Isaiah 46, the living God says, I will carry you. That already gives us a hint as where this battle is going to end. But as any good fight, um, you know, there's a boxing match or a WWF wrestling. A couple of days before, or even just before, you know, these two guys get eye to eye and they, they trash talk. You know, what I'm going to do with, with you and I'm going to slaughter you and I'll rip your head off. And Goliath is getting into trash talk. But uh, David is no ordinary shepherd boy. And in verse 45, he's got something to say to Goliath as well. So let's see what David is saying. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This is the day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And I'm sure Goliath thought, yeah, right. Talk is cheap. <coughs> now, it has taken the author 48 verses to get here. 48 verses. We're on the edge of our seat. It's finally, you know, it's going to happen. And how long does the fight last? One verse. <laughs> verse 49. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down onto the ground. Verse 50. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. 30 seconds into the first round, game over. You know, the television producer is tearing his hair out. There wasn't even a commercial break. You know, like, <laughs> the fight between the non-gods and the living God of Israel is no fight at all. So what's the point of this story? Verse 47. Verse 47 says, All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. And what David had said is going to come true, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. This battle is very relevant in the history of Christianity. Actually, the history of the whole Bible. In Genesis 3.15, the first battle occurs. And this battle is a continuation of a battle that started back in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So God has an enemy. 
And he is out to oppose whatever plan it is that God has for his kingdom and his people. And throughout the Bible, if you read, that, that battle came to a high point every now and then. In Pharaoh, Pharaoh was a, a, an enemy. There was a battle between him and his gods and the living God of Israel. And God won without a sword and without a spear. Right? By his name. Later on in the story of the Old Testament, remember Esther? When Haman tried to kill off all God's people, God uses the, the weakness of Esther in her, in her role as princess. And, that, and he overcame you know, Haman's plans, not by sword or by spear. So the battle is repeated throughout the Bible. And throughout history. And it ultimately ends in the great battle where Christ is on the cross. And the question is, what, what was the enemy <clears throat> that Christ has overcome? What, what is the, our greatest fear for all human beings? Every single human being has one fear that we can't do anything about. No human can overcome this this enemy, you know what it is? Death. There's nothing anybody can do about death. It is the non-Christian's biggest fear. And it leaves them terrified most of the time. And how did death get into the world? Via sin. So death and sin is our enemy. Death and sin are far too big for us, far too more powerful, far too well trained, far too large. We need a man to go between. We need a go-between. A man to stand in between us and our greatest enemy. Someone who represents all of the people of God and in whose victory we can stand. Isn't it great? Can you hear? It's a, you, you have to hear Christ in this whole story. Jesus Christ is the most unlikely champion who comes from Bethlehem, who was shunned by his own brothers, who, was this, who, who, who were dismissed by the Pharisees, Nothing looked less like a Messiah than Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. And yet, in his weakness, without a sword or spear, God saves us from sin and death because Jesus rose again. His victory is our victory. So can you see why you and I are not David? We cannot do that. You and I are not there, but Jesus Christ won the battle for us. You and I are the Israelite armies. Without the champion, we have to be fearful of this massive enemy. We have to. But now, <coughs> if you read the final parts, it says there that um, 
David sprung into action. After David killed Goliath, the whole of Israel army sprung into action. Suddenly they had life and they had courage. We, we are the church who, in light of Jesus Christ's victory, need to get into action and charge and take the plunder. We are the carriers of good news and we need to go after the Philistines, not to kill them, but to invite them in. And we need to stand for Jesus in this world because they are terrified. They live in terror. If you push them, if you discuss the death, and we've got great news. We know the champion who stood between us, got the victory for us. They don't have to fear that anymore. It's a phenomenal story. They don't have to be afraid. And they do not have to live in fear. That is our role. We are the army to follow this Jesus Christ, follow our champion, um, and tell the Gentiles, you don't have to be afraid. So, whatever it lies ahead for Crossword, whatever darkness, whatever challenge is lying ahead of you, let's take these, these things. It may seem like a, a giant of a problem. Can I say to you, do not be dismayed. The battle is the Lord's. Even though there are many practical decisions to be made, <clears throat> Remember, first and foremost, this is a spiritual battle. Be on our knees. Be on your knees. And just like the Israelites, um, who put their trust in Saul, let's not make that mistake. Let's not put our, our trust in a man. Let's not put our trust in a human being of any sort, but ultimately in Christ, who has won the victory for us. And no matter what kind of decisions you guys make, whatever it must, whatever decisions you make, whatever plans you make, you have to make the plan that will allow you to invite the most people into the kingdom. It has to be a kingdom-focused um, decision, plan, prayer for your future. To tell Somerset West the good news of Jesus Christ. So go and may the Lord be with you. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for this story of real people who fought real battles and that you as the, the living God of Israel won this victory without a sword or a spear, but through your name and through your power and your use of one individual who has overcome a mighty enemy. And in history, Heavenly Father, you did it again, ultimately through Christ. Thank you that there is nothing too big, too scary, that you haven't uh, defeated yet. And I want to pray for us as Christians here in Somerset West that where it's a personal uh, dilemma, a sickness, a relationship that seems too big for us to deal with, 
Help us not to put our trust in our own resources. Help us not to trust our own money or intelligence or connections or network. But ultimately, will you help us to run to you so that we can put our trust in you? The battle is yours. You're the king. Will you fight the battle for us? Thank you, Jesus, that you have that you are our champion, that you have stood between us and sin and death. And you promised that. Now that you have dealt with that problem, why won't you give us all the other things that we need to proclaim the gospel as well? Thank you that we don't have to do these things on our own. We praise you. We fall at our feet and we honor you as our champion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.